Many of you I already know, but my name is John Tamney. Um, I'm the Senior Director of Development at the Cato Institute, and I'll first say how flattered I am to be asked to participate in tonight's uh, proceedings. Uh, I say that because I can honestly say Cato U is easily one of our best products. I, I know this firsthand. I first attended in 2003, and it profoundly changed my thinking. It was just a wonderful experience. I've attended several since, and I hope all of you have had as a good, good of a week this week as I've had many times, and that you'll want to come back, and then after that, tell all of your friends and acquaintances about uh, what, a, what a great opportunity this is. Um, now, there's, of course, a challenge in making tonight's introduction, and there is because David Bowes is a man who needs no introduction. Um, with the possible exception of Cato co-founder Ed Crane, no one is more synonymous with Cato than is David Bowes. Uh, David built the place. He, he, from its very earliest days, uh, David, David was here uh, making Cato what it is today. And that's why Ed, to this day, and then Peter Gettler, our beloved new CEO, don't refer to David as David Bowes. They always refer to him as the indispensable David Bowes. Uh, to put it as plainly as possible, Cato is not the globally important organization that it is, if not for David. Um, he's truly uh, made this place what it is today um, in, in countless ways. Um, one of the things I'll point out about him is that he's very principled in a lot of ways, and he disputes this story, but I believe everything that Ed Crane tells me. Um, so should all of you. And, and Ed, Ed swears that he's been at restaurants with David where they'll bring him Pepsi, and he's literally walked out of restaurants because they had the temerity to serve Pepsi over Coca-Cola. Now, he can dispute that, but rumor has it it's true. Um, he's a very particular um, and exact, exacting person. I don't know this personally, but I've heard he's a tough editor. Now, most of you know David not from his editing, thank goodness, but from his op-eds. You've seen them over the decades in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post. Uh, you've also seen him on TV, on all the important networks, and also the cable shows. Uh, David is not just a writer of libertarian ideas. He's one of the most public and, and, and prominent faces of libertarianism. And then there's the books. Um, I first read Libertarianism, a Primer in 2003. Ed Crane, and he's always right, says it's the best book about libertarianism in existence. It had a huge impact on me. Toward Liberty, I think, is easily one of the best books you can ever read. It's a compilation of articles from some of the top minds in libertarianism. There's the Libertarian Reader. And then So Good Was Libertarianism a Primer that David wrote a, a modern version of it uh, in the past year. It was published in, in February of this year called The Libertarian Mind, and it's similarly excellent. Uh, there, I've learned enormous amounts from David over the years, far more than he knows, and and this is the part I shouldn't admit, but I've plagiarized him a great deal over the years. And so um, he can come back and get me for that at some later date. But probably what most impresses me about David is his optimism. I think specifically back to 2008, 2010, many people thought that the U.S. was in decline. Uh, they, there were lots of comments going around about how we're staring at France in the rearview mirror that uh, liberty had lost. Um, understandably, people would feel that way based on the Bush and Obama disasters. And it was then that David was giving speeches at events like this talking about how much progress had been made, how there's reason to be optimistic about the future of liberty, about what's been accomplished. 
I think that's so important because I don't think pessimism sells. I think optimism always wins, and there's a lot to be optimistic about. And a major reason for that is because of the work David's done over the decades. Um, the indispensable David Bowes, um, after all this slobbering, I will just finally introduce the real thing. Ladies and gentlemen, here's David Bowes. Thank you, John. I don't know why we had any arguments about um, who should do the introduction tonight. I should always have John introduce me. Um, welcome, everybody, uh, to Washington. Welcome to the Cato Institute and Cato University. I know you've been here for several days, but it's the first time I've had a chance uh, to talk to you about it. Uh, we are very proud of our Cato uh, University program. It goes back, uh, I think, to 1978. Uh, when we did the first of these at Stanford University and Dartmouth College, and we've moved them around to resorts and colleges, and now we found out the cheapest place to do it is right here, and we built this building, so why not? Um, but we're glad to have you here. Um, I want to talk about some of the themes from my book, The Libertarian Mind, and libertarianism generally, since my book is supposed to be an expression of libertarianism today. Um, that's, the, that's the theme of the book. It's a great time to be a libertarian. And one of my colleagues suggested to me recently that in 2008, the American people rejected the social conservative and neoconservative foreign policy agenda that the Bush administration had given us. In 2014, they rejected the big government, big spending agenda of the Obama administration, which means maybe they're looking for a new public philosophy, something other than Bushism and Obamaism. And we have one, libertarianism, the libertarian mind. Uh, I do think that there are a lot more people in America who are libertarian, broadly speaking, than realize it. People who love the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. People who say, and this is 59% of the American people in a poll that we did, <clears throat> People who say that they are fiscally conservative and socially liberal. People who might say, I want the government out of my pocketbook and out of my bedroom. Uh, the people that David Brooks was talking about in the New York Times a month ago when he said the swing voters in this coming election will be people who don't think redistribution is the path to economic growth and don't know why anybody would start their presidential campaign at Jerry Falwell's college. <laughs> if you fall into any of those groups, then you just might be a libertarian. One of my goals with the libertarian mind is to make more of the millions of essentially libertarian Americans recognize that that's what they are and that they should feel themselves part of the broad libertarian community. This has been an exciting time to be a libertarian. And let me tell you, I've been a libertarian for a long time. And I went through lots of times it wasn't very exciting. It was painful and difficult and lonely to be a libertarian. Um, and it's gotten a lot better. Just if you, you know, I went, I worked at Cato for decades and never saw the word libertarian in a newspaper headline. Now, you see headlines about libertarians. You see headlines about the libertarian faction of the Republican Party, the libertarian wing of Congress. I have to admit, I look at that one and I go, who is this libertarian wing of Congress? It's Rand Paul. Um, but if the media believe there's a libertarian wing, that's a good thing. So I'm, I'm glad they do. One of the reasons 
people are talking about libertarianism. One of the reasons that opposition to overweening government rises in any historical period is when the government pushes too far, too fast in the direction of more power and more government. And that's what we've been seeing recently. I know for a lot of you, this is your entire historical experience, the Bush-Obama years. For some of us, it's just the latest one damn thing after another. Uh, for those of you who don't remember anything other than Bush and Obama, we used to have presidents who weren't that bad. Um, <laughs> but anyway, what did we get from the Bush administration? We got the Patriot Act, the Iraq War, the Federal Marriage Amendment, the No Child Left Behind Act, a trillion dollar increase in federal spending even before the financial crisis. Then we got the financial crisis caused by the government, by the Federal Reserve and the regulations of uh, Congress. We got the bailouts of Wall Street, the bailouts of the automobile industry, the takeover of the automobile industry, then the $800 billion stimulus package and the takeover of the healthcare industry. And then a few years later, we got the revelations about how much the government was spying on us, mass surveillance that we had not known about, partly because the people who were doing it had lied to Congress about whether they were doing it. And now we're talking about issues today like marijuana legalization, marriage equality, the Federal Reserve, police misconduct for the past year or so, and all of these issues that I'm talking about bring to the fore the, the issue of individual freedom and the scope of government power. So when I say people are talking about libertarianism, partly it's they're using the word libertarian and partly it's that they're talking about how much freedom should there be? How powerful should the government be? Where do we draw that line? And those are issues that libertarians are at the center of, and we have been at the center of virtually all of these debates. No wonder the Gallup poll is finding record numbers of Americans saying that the federal government has too much power and is trying to do too many things that should be left to businesses and individuals. Now, I think a lot of times we don't realize that American public opinion is getting better in a lot of ways. So a young friend of mine uh, put together this chart for a blog post and Tom Palmer said, you've got to, you've got to pick this chart up, you've got to use it. There it is. That is a trend line of polling results that are moving in a libertarian direction. Now a lot of these are social issues, immigration, marijuana, uh, gay marriage, or gay relations generally, but two of those lines are about guns, uh, one is about uh, deregulation, uh, one is about the need to limit federal power, about health care, and as you can see, there's a lot of bouncing around, but there's a pretty steady change from the mid-1980s to the mid-2010s in a libertarian direction. That's good. I'm glad to see that. We're working some of those issues, trying to make those changes, but in a way, that's just politics. Politics changes. What we're really about here at the Cato Institute and what I hope the libertarian movement is about generally is principles, liberty, limiting the power of government broadly, not just on these particular issues. And one of the things that's important for us is to understand what we stand for. Before we go out and try to elect people to office or even to decide what policies we're for, what is it we stand for? One of the best phrases to answer that question, I think, came from Adam Smith many years ago 
the simple system of natural liberty. Just allow people to live their lives, to act within a few simple rules, don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. If everybody abides by those rules, and if the few people who don't are arrested, uh, dealt with uh, as a criminal matter, um, if everybody abides by those rules, you have the simple system of natural liberty, and it leads to peace and social harmony and economic growth and widespread prosperity. So the simple system of natural liberty is a good term. I start the book, The Libertarian Mind, by saying libertarianism is the philosophy of freedom. And I go on to say personal and economic freedom. For some reason in America, we got this sort of bifurcation so that sometimes people on the left support more personal freedom than people on the right, and sometimes people on the right support more economic freedom than people on the left. And libertarians are the ones who say, you know, the consistent view is if you trust people to live their lives, then personal and economic freedom is what they're entitled to. These ideas have deep roots in America. There was a book published a few years ago by two very distinguished sociologists. Um, book was called, It Didn't Happen Here, Why Socialism Failed in the United States. And what they meant was not that it failed by being tried and running out of toilet paper the way it's failing in Venezuela, but <laughs> that socialism didn't happen in America. And I know there are areas where we think, well, yeah, it really did. Uh, we have a socialist school system, a socialist post office system. But compared to the rest of the developed world, in Europe, they had real socialist parties. And when those parties came to power, they nationalized the means of production, which is what they intended to do as socialists. We never did that in America. And these sociologists said, this is because the American ideology stemming from the American Revolution can be subsumed in five words, anti-statism, laissez-faire, individualism, populism, egalitarianism. And when they say egalitarianism, they mean equality under the law, maybe equality in the eyes of God, not everybody gets an equal share of the country's wealth. So this kind of point of view, anti-statism, laissez-faire, individualism, populism, egalitarianism, these are the fundamental ideas of America, and they explain why things like socialism didn't happen here. Two very distinguished political scientists also, I could, I could read quotes from distinguished scholars all day, but I'm just going to read one more, uh, from two distinguished political scientists. Um, they wrote a book called The American Ethos. And they said, the American ethos is a combination of capitalism and democracy, which, quote, evolved side by side as part of a common protest against the inequities and petty tyrannies of old world monarchism, mercantilism, and feudalism, both aimed to free the individual from the dead hand of traditional restraints and to limit the power of the rich and well-born to exploit the less privileged. That's the American tradition, and that's the tradition in the United States we are able to appeal to. I think it would be harder to argue for liberty in other countries because you don't have this incredible basis on which to rely. Now, Tom Palmer is fond of saying every country has a narrative of liberty. Every society has a narrative of liberty. They just have to find that narrative. It's really easy in the United States. It's not as easy some other places. So let me talk for a minute about the book. Um, 
when I've been going out and talking about the book on the lecture circuit, and I have done a fair number of lectures and uh, radio programs and things like that, one of the things I do is I talk about the key ideas in the book, the key ideas of libertarianism. And there are three I want to focus on. Number one is individual rights. Libertarians believe people have individual rights. And more specifically, they have them because of the nature of man. They have them inherently as a person. They are not a gift from any part of the government. They are not granted to you by the king or the president or the Congress. They are not even granted by the Constitution. It's pretty common in America for people to say the Constitution gives me the right to do that. That is wrong. The Constitution protects your right to do that, which you had before the Constitution was written. Why did we write the Constitution? So we would have a government to take care of those minimal tasks that government is appropriate for and to not exceed those powers. That's what the Constitution is about. So the Constitution doesn't give us our rights. We have our rights. Now, where do they come from? Well, libertarians don't always agree about that. Some would say from God. You've all heard of God-given rights. Some would say it's from the nature of man. Randy Barnett said today in his talk, it's from our reason, understanding what rules we need in order to live together in civilization and order. That's the nature of man. The nature is such that our reason tells us follow these rules. Declaration of Independence finesses this a little bit. There's a reference in there to the laws of nature and of nature's God. So whether you want the God part or the nature part, it's all in there. Um, some libertarians, a lot of economists in particular, would derive their idea of individual rights from consequences. We can look and see. If society operates under these rules, what will be the consequences? If it operates under these rules, what will be the consequences? Well, then, these are the rules that we ought to follow. Um, some might get it from history. Their study of history tells them if you give government any power, it tries to take more. It will always seek to aggrandize its power and take away your freedom, therefore restrict the government to protecting individual rights. What libertarians do agree on is that these rights are imprescriptible. That is, they are not prescribed by any human agency, a document, a legislature, an executive. They are imprescriptible. Um, they inhere in the nature of man. Second key idea, spontaneous order. If you've taken a political theory class, then you've heard about normative and positive theories. Normative theory about what is right. Positive theories about what is. So individual rights is a normative theory. It posits that this is the way the world ought to work. Spontaneous order is a positive theory. It just says this is the way the world is. You don't have to be a libertarian to see spontaneous order happening. Spontaneous order is the idea that most of the order in society happens naturally through human action but not human design. Evolve. Human uh, order evolves from human action as long as you have these simple rules. Don't hit other people. Don't take their stuff. This is a hard concept to understand, unless you've been reading a lot of libertarian literature. But for most people, this is a hard concept to understand. And for intellectuals in particular, they can see that it takes a lot of planning to make most things in our lives happen. Took a lot of planning to put together Cato University. Took a lot of planning to write my book and get it published and get it into bookstores. 
uh, takes a lot more planning to create communications and financial networks that span the globe so that, as I say in the book, I can walk up to, the, to an ATM built into the side of a 300-year-old building in France and stick a card in and get francs out without ever having to deal with any person in a country where I don't speak the language. And yet, imagine what it took to produce that network. A lot of planning, but it was planning within a society that is largely unplanned. Institutions in society that are unplanned. Think about language. Nobody sat down and wrote the English language and says, this is the way we will speak. French, Swahili, English, all of those languages evolved as people spoke them, and they change. Um, I am sort of, as when it comes to language, a prescriptivist. That is, I think there are right ways and wrong ways to speak the English language. Um, that's part of what I do as an editor, telling people this is wrong. Uh, just recently, a young editor at the Cato Institute uh, sent me something, and I pointed out, you cannot use the phrase between you and I. And he said, no, no, it's optional. No, it's not. It's wrong. Um, and then he came back to me, and he said, well, in his new book on language and style, Steven Pinker says that it's optional. I said, well, then Steven Pinker is dead to me. But despite my attempting to hold back the tide of the English language, it does change. You can't read Chaucer. You can barely read Shakespeare. A hundred years from now, there will be things that we won't understand. Um, so language is always changing. Now, there are exceptions. You may have heard of a language called Esperanto. There are a few languages that actually have been designed by a person or a committee of persons. And it makes perfect sense. Language is very complicated. Have you ever tried to learn a foreign language? Very complicated. So why not write a language that's simple, that draws on the sounds and the grammar rules of many languages so that it's easy for everybody to understand, a sort of common denominator, a true lingua franca? Um, those languages have two things in common. They are carefully designed to serve human needs, and no one speaks them. <laughs> People only speak the languages that have evolved. Law. Law is another thing that we certainly think of as coming from government, right? Congress makes the law. Judges make the law. The Supreme Court makes the law. But initially, law was just a tool to solve a problem. My tree fell on your property. Who's responsible? People turned to a neighbor to say, well, originally, people fought. But then they figured out maybe it would be better just to go to a neighbor and say, look, we have this dispute. Can you, can you help us settle it? And some of these neighbors began to say, well, you know, the way to settle this is the last time we had this problem, we settled it this way. So let's take that as the precedent, and let's, let's do it that way. And some of these neighbors came to be regarded as wise, and they came to be known as judges. And that's how the law evolved, sort of spontaneously, not by any central design. The common law of England and America was developed this way. When people had a dispute, they went and solved the problem. And then the government came along and said, hey, law is a pretty powerful tool. I think we will take over the law, and we will start issuing, we won't wait for disputes, we will just issue edicts and fatwas and whatever, telling people how they have to live together instead of waiting to see if there's a problem that needs to be solved. Money is the same way. Most people think money is something that is created by Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke, and they have been creating a lot of it. But initially, money solved a social problem. 
I have apples, you have fish, let's trade. Ah, but I don't like fish. Now we have a problem. We have to go find a third person who has something else that each of us wants. We need a unit of exchange. Various kinds of things were tried as units of exchange in different societies. Many societies settled on gold and silver because they seem solid, they hold their value. And then the government stepped in and the government said, you know, gold and silver, great idea. And the way you'll know it's a real gold coin is it has the king's picture on it. So if the king's image is stamped on it, then you know it's a good coin. And then the king said, and really, who can tell? It's a one ounce coin. If I shave just a little bit off each coin, who's going to know? And each year they shave a little bit more. And eventually, you know, people can tell. Um, and that's when you get things like Gresham's Law, good, uh, bad money drives out good, that sort of thing. Um, and then governments discovered paper. And you can print so much more paper than gold. So you, 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 you put the king's picture on the paper, and then you just issue all of it you want. You can buy anything you want. Um, and that's how we got to a system where the Federal Reserve was created to uh, get us over the problem of uh, financial panics and so on. And it uh, put its backing behind the dollar. And in 100 years, the dollar has lost 95% of its value. So that's what happens when you don't allow the money to spontaneously develop. You turn it over to government. Um, the most important way we talk about spontaneous order these days is about the economy. How does the economy work? Who plans the American economy? Well, the answer that all of you know is no one does, and that's why it works. There are economies where people tried to plan them, and they became disasters. Milton Friedman talked about how he went to China, and the minister of the economy asked him a question. Now, if you're the minister of the economy in China, you're a very smart person. They have a 5,000-year-old bureaucracy there that's been pretty much run as a meritocracy through all of China's governments, even the communist government. This is a smart guy. And he says, hey, he's talking to a Nobel laureate economist. He says, tell me, who is responsible for materials distribution in the United States? Friedman, for once, was speechless. How do you answer that question? He said, I thought of telling him the Chicago Board of Trade. <laughs> Sort of true for some materials, but obviously the point is no one is in charge of materials distribution. Everybody gets up every morning thinking, how can I make my life and that of my family better than it was yesterday? And so you make hundreds of decisions every day. Will I go to Starbucks? Is that taking too much time? Should I make my own coffee? It's cheaper. Should I get a biscuit along with the coffee? And every one of those decisions through the price system plays into the working of the economy, which every day moves closer to satisfying more human needs with the level of output that the society has available to it that day. Nobody plans it, it evolves, and the price system coordinates. And what happens then? The government says, hey, we ought to get involved in that, intellectuals. And my image of this is Bill and Hillary Clinton and Ira Magaziner sitting around a Yale dormitory going, man, when we get in, we can make things so much better. We'll organize stuff. Do you know how inefficient it is? 23 kinds of toothpaste. Who needs 23 kinds of toothpaste? And you know, I saw a business that went out of uh, business just today. We can avoid that. We will plan the economy so there's no waste and it's more efficient. And they get up to Washington and they try to do it. Fortunately, 
They can't do too much of it because we do have a system. But you know Bill Clinton actually, Arrow Magaziner helped Bill Clinton design a 20-year plan for which industries America was going to need more of or less of? I'll bet they didn't mention the internet industry. <laughs> um, that's, what you, that's what you need to remember. If we allow things to evolve spontaneously, new ideas happen. If you decide to plan the economy over the next 20 years, the only thing you're going to do is say, what do we want more of and what do we want less of? But you can't plan for innovation. Hayek's last book was called The Fatal Conceit. What is the fatal conceit? It's the idea of Bill and Hillary Clinton and Ira Magaziner and a lot of other people that they can direct resources more efficiently with a central plan than can millions of independent decision makers with their own money and their own welfare on the line in every decision they make. That's the spontaneous order that we need to protect. So we have individual rights, we have spontaneous order, and the third key principle I want to mention is limited government to protect individual rights and spontaneous order. In America, we usually say limited constitutional government. It doesn't have to be a constitution. There might be other ways to limit, but we certainly thought that's the way to, you write down Article 1, Section 8. These are the powers we're delegating to the government. And delegating, we, we have our freedoms. We have our rights. We could exercise these powers ourselves. But we decide to delegate a few powers to the government. We enumerate them in the Constitution, and by delegating and enumerating them, we limit them because these are the only powers we have delegated and enumerated. In my view, government is essential to making society work, but it must be limited. It must only do those things that the people have granted the power to do. So those are the three big ideas I try to leave people with when I talk about my book. Now, the book covers a lot of other ideas, individualism, toleration, the rule of law, peace. Um, all of those things are important, and therefore, read the book. Don't just, uh, don't just accept what I said here. In practical terms, of course, libertarians favor smaller government, less spending, lower taxes, free trade, civil liberties, personal freedom, and a less interventionist approach to defense and foreign affairs. We celebrate civil society, free association, and the social progress that they generate, and we seek strict limits on the size, scope, and power of government in order to maximize freedom. I believe millions and millions of Americans basically believe in these ideas, but it's also true that libertarian ideas are radical. They go to the root of the problem. That's, if you've studied Latin, you know that's what radical means, going to the root. They go to the root of the question of the individual and the state. And yet, as my friend Brian Doherty wrote in his wonderful book on the history of the libertarian movement, libertarian ideas are radical, but they are deeply rooted in Western civilization, which he wrote, now runs on approximately libertarian principles. That can be a hard thing for us to remember. It doesn't look like it, does it? And yet, if you think about the world 300 years ago, and the world today, the world before and after liberalism. What happened with liberalism? Liberalism came into the world, and instead of kings and nobles and a society of status, if your father was king, you're a king. If your father was a serf, you're a serf. 
We created a society of merit. Anybody can rise, anybody can fall in this society. Instead of a society with an established church, we have religious freedom. Instead of a society that said all wisdom comes from the king or from one book, uh, different books in different societies, but that all the wisdom comes from one place, we brought science and reason to the fore of understanding the world. Instead of monopolies and mercantilism, we rely mostly on property and markets. So um, we have, in fact, changed the Western world, at least, and increasingly the rest of the world, to run on approximately libertarian principles, something that was not true more than 300 years ago. Libertarians have a record to be proud of. We have been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries. And it is to those ideas and that struggle that we owe the best parts of our civilization. Libertarians love the book Road to Serfdom. They should, but it is not a guide to the modern world. We are not, in fact, on an unending road to serfdom. More than libertarians often acknowledge, we live in a world of freedom and progress. We have extended the promises of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to people to whom they had long been denied. Around the world, more people in more countries than ever before in history enjoy religious freedom, personal freedom, democratic governance, the power to own and trade property, equal rights, civility, respect, a higher standard of living, and a longer life expectancy. War, disease, violence, slavery, and inhumanity have been dramatically reduced in our modern world. And it is libertarian ideas and liberty-minded people who have made that happen. Now, there is no magic bullet. There's never been a golden age of liberty, and there never will be. There will always be people who want to live their lives in peace, and there will always be people who want to exploit them or impose their own agenda always a conflict between liberty and power. But in fighting to get closer to that libertarian golden age, to expand freedom and to extend it to people who have not yet enjoyed it, we have it easier than a lot of people. I want to tell you a couple of stories about people who have wanted to pursue libertarianism in their societies. On a Saturday morning in the summer of the year 2000, eight young people met in a shabby apartment near Beijing University and started a study group to debate the need for political reform in China. Some were students, others were recent graduates, not one was over 30. One of them was Yang Zili, a young computer whiz who was inspired by reading the works of Václav Havel and F.A. Hayek. He set up a website, Yang Zi's Home of Ideas, where he posted essays condemning communism and arguing for democratic reform. I am a liberal, he wrote, and what I care about are human rights, freedom, and democracy. His wife told him, you don't have to do this. With your education, you could have a better future. You should think of our family. But Yang brushed aside the complaint. His wife says, he told me that someone had to stand up and work for social progress and he had decided to stand up. This all started the summer of the year 2000. On March 13, 2001, 
Less than a year later, state security agents detained five study group members, including the young Hayek fan Yang Zili. Yang spent eight years in jail for posting ideas on the web. When he got out, he joined the Transition Institute to do research. And then, early this year, the Chinese government cracked down on civic groups, and the last report I could get was that Yang Zili is in hiding, but hopefully not in jail. Another story is even more personal to us. Um, a few years ago, we held a Cato seminar, much like this, shorter, uh, in Cairo, Egypt. And one of the young men who attended was named Karim Amer. He was 21. He came from a repressive Islamist family. He finally decided that he didn't want to live in a cave with no music, internet, or television. And he wrote, I started blogging. The people who came to this conference, in many cases, were writers and bloggers uh, from the Arab world. I started blogging because it was a way of expressing my disapproval of many issues in society, specifically the ill treatment of women in the Muslim world. He saw Muslim riots against a Christian church in Alexandria, and he said, what I witnessed during these riots is what inspired me to write the article, the truth as I saw it and nothing else. So he started blogging, but that freedom didn't last long. He launched his blog in August 2005 and was arrested two months later in October 2005. He was taken to an Egyptian prison. He was blindfolded. He says he sat silent on a chair for hours, not aware that there was someone in the room watching him all that time. Suddenly, he wrote, a man approached me. He said, I want you to tell me everything or I will gradually torture you like there is no tomorrow. Another year and a half later, in 2007, Kareem was sentenced to four years in prison, three years for contempt of religion, and one year for defaming the president of Egypt. He had defamed him by calling him a tyrant. So he put him in jail for calling him a tyrant. Kareem's father called for him to be executed for his criticisms of Islam. We don't have to deal with things like that. We have it easier. No one will put us in jail for speaking out. All we have to do is write letters to our public officials and letters to the editor and speak out at public meetings or speak up against subsidies and regulations in your trade association, give a book to a friend, give money to a candidate, join a group working for tax cuts or gay marriage or against the endless wars, uh, or create a libertarian student group. It's legal in this country. But we do have to do that because freedom isn't free. I was asked once by some skeptics what the most important libertarian accomplishment ever was. And I thought for a moment and said the abolition of slavery. Okay, they said, name another. I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. I thought that if you had the abolition of slavery on your resume, you were prepared to meet your maker. But they said, name another. So I thought a little more carefully, and I said, bringing power under the rule of law. That's the fundamental libertarian achievement. It is a revolutionary achievement. It is still incomplete. It's what the levelers and John Locke and the American founders fought for. It's what the protesters in 1989 fought for. 
It's what Rand Paul filibustered for. It's what protesters today, friends of ours, people Tom Palmer has visited all over the world, people in China and Hong Kong and Egypt and Venezuela fight for in much more challenging circumstances. It's what we should all fight for, and I thank you for being part of that historic struggle. Thank you very much.